0: last week was a momentous one for president biden a major bill moved through congress that directs billions of dollars toward intel and other microchip manufacturers around the country so why is intel's stock plummeting i'm andrew Thien, and this is beat check with the oregonian up next mike rogway who covers business and technology for the oregonian and oregon live we talked about the chips act passing with bipartisan support in both chambers of congress what it will mean for Intel, why the company's stock is in free fall, and much more. On the second half of the show, we talked about the recent Oregon Secretary of State audit into the state's employment departments. Here's our conversation. Mike Rogaway, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Yeah, glad to be here, Andrew.
0: So, Mike, we've talked previously about the potential for big federal action related to semiconductors, and that happened in recent days. Remind us why this became a big issue and why it had bipartisan support in Congress.
1: Yeah, this goes all the way back uh, to the Trump administration and its trade fights with with uh, China. And during that time, it emerged that the vast majority of semiconductors are made outside of the United States. And we had in the wake of the, the pandemic, we had an extreme shortage of semiconductors. Um, and it's not just we think, oh, well, they power our computers, but it's, it's not just those in our smartphones. They're essential ingredients in every kind of automobile, in every kind of appliance. They play just you know everything from being the brains of the device to just playing a little helper but essential role mm-hmm. in managing it and so we had this great shortage and so it became clear uh late in the trump administration that the us this was a particular vulnerability for the us and the most advanced semiconductors are made in taiwan which is obviously a geopolitical risk with china so as that risk emerged people said um maybe we should do something to promote the U.S. industry. China, Taiwan, and South Korea all substantially subsidized their industries. So they came up with this $52 billion CHIPS Act, which would directly subsidize um, the construction of new semiconductor factories in the United States. And uh, after Trump left, uh, President Biden was very much in favor of this as well. And it had bipartisan support in the Senate. It was seen as an... uh, a bill to help the U.S. compete with China. So it passed last, in June of 2021 very easily in the Senate. And then the House didn't take it up for a long time. And when they finally did, they included other um, other Democratic priorities around climate change and, and trade. And those didn't go over with Republicans. So it stalled for another six or seven months. Uh, all this time, Intel, it was pushing Intel being Oregon's largest Employer was pushing very hard for this legislation. They have this eighty billion dollar turnaround plan to revive their engineering prowess. And Intel, you know, each each, each factory they mm-hmm. call them fabs. Each chip fa- fab is ten billion dollars a piece. And Intel badly wants to offset that cost. They're building a, a new fab, two new fabs in Arizona, two in Ohio, and, and at least one in Germany. And so they're looking to the government to help them get the same side of subsidies that the manufacturers in Asia do.
0: So this is different than kind of the, the what we're familiar with out in Washington County, where it's like property tax abatements. Um, you know, this is That's direct, right. this direct is, cash.
1: Well, yes, the bill, bill evolved beyond that. But yes, Oregon provides you know enormous uh, tax breaks on Intel's property taxes worth, you know, I think... Well over a hundred million dollars a year, but it's not cash out of the pocket. Uh, and this bill is that; it is you know literally um, cash uh, for these companies. In previous bills, it was it was capped at three billion dollars per factory. I'm not sure where that ended up in the final legislation. I have not seen that specified, but it'll probably be in that neighborhood. And so, when you're building four factories in the United States, that's a substantial offset for them. So that was a. a Something that that Intel's new CEO Pat Gelsinger has been working on really since he got the job in uh, the winter in January February 2021. It finally passed the House, uh, you know, the Senate, and the House this past week. Uh, the president will sign it very soon. He's been an enthusiastic backer of it, so it's, it's a big win for Intel. It's a big win for Oregon's congressional delegation, which pushed for it. Oregon isn't going to get. Now, the final bill, in addition to these direct subsidies, it also includes tax credits for money you spend on, um, on, you know, improving or upgrading your your factory capacity and your or your technology in the inside the United States. Also provides some money for semiconductor research. So it, it's a it's a big win. It'll pay billions for Intel for for years to come. And although Oregon doesn't have any new factories on the drawing board right now companies have gone elsewhere in the country you know the research components of this will be a boon for intel's investments here and there is hope uh, among civic boosters in oregon that some of the money that's set aside to to fund a new semiconductor research center or maybe multiple research centers in the united states that might end up in oregon we might end up with some kind of of some portion of that, some kind of new semiconductor research center in the state.
0: Okay, so that's a lot to untangle. And it seems like how could that be nothing other than a big win for Intel yet? <laughs> last week, uh, Intel had some bad news to report. Um, can you talk about what that was? The Congress finished its work on this bill. It just happened to
1: be less than an hour before Intel had scheduled the release of its quarterly results. And everyone kind of expected Intel's quarterly results would be a disappointment because the PC market has been softening in part because of the economy, in part because people bought their PCs when the pandemic started uh, to work from home. And they don't need another one, uh, not <laughs> yet anyway. And so PC sales have been softening, softening, and now it's clear they're really soft, that the the demand for this is is. Is way down, and so Intel's results, um, which they issued Thursday, were far below expectations. Uh, they cut uh, as much as 11 billion dollars from your, their annual revenue forecast. It'd be their their biggest one year decline in revenue ever, in percentage terms, at least in the last few decades. Uh, so it, they were awful numbers. Their profit margin is is falling badly. And Wall Street was was really unhappy um, with the results. The you know, stock is down uh, almost nine percent on Friday. Uh, wiped out something like thirteen billion dollars in market value for Intel. Uh, and the investment analysts were were angry both because it it doesn't speak well to Intel's turnaround plan. Not that not that there's anything fundamentally wrong with the plan, but it's going to be. It, they're going to be spending a lot of money to rebuild the company at a time when revenues are falling. And it's it's just going to be that much harder to balance.
0: When you're planning on building big uh, facilities, but your revenue is plunging, um, that's not something generally that people who own stock in a company are going to be in favor of. No,
1: no. Uh, you know, Intel's profit margins, their gross profit margins had been up around 60%. Uh, they're going to be under 50% now. Uh their free cash flow, which is, you know, one measure of their profitability is, has gone negative and and will be for some time to come. And, and investment analysts are particularly unhappy, I think, because Intel didn't warn them this was coming. Publicly traded companies, if you've had a really bad quarter, it's very typical for them to say, you know, as you're halfway through the quarter, okay, we're not going to release our full results for another month or so, but We want to give you a heads up things really aren't looking the way we told you they were three months ago intel didn't do that and they delivered really terrible terrible results and you know one one analyst you know wrote to his clients uh friday morning he said it's intel's second quarter takes the prize for the worst we have ever seen in our career (laughs) uh and and you know he he said oh there's you know there's a lot of factors going into it and he says well some some investors could potentially see a kitchen sink in the results. It seems more likely that things are circling the drain. Is really dire stuff um, from Wall Street, and it, you know, that the question now is: so Intel's got this all this federal largesse coming its way. Are they positioned to take advantage of it?
0: What's the early read on that? Right, because this isn't, you know, as with any program. In any level of government, it's not like you turn on the spigot and it starts flowing uh, immediately. How, how long until uh, Intel sees uh, the Chips Act money come their way?
1: Not this year. Uh, they were clear on that yesterday. It's going to be a process to to allocate who gets what, and I could imagine it may be something of a fight. Uh, but it won't start coming until next year at the earliest, uh, and you know uh, f- it, it could be a a long long, tough stretch if the economy stays weak for Intel, that it, it's, it's just really going to, to weigh on them. Um, that And, and you know, th- this investment, it's, it's designed, you know, to improve, you know, the flow of, of semiconductors in the US, but it takes at a minimum two to three years to build a new fab. So, you know, this isn't going to provide any immediate, all this federal money isn't going to provide any immediate benefit on to the alleviating the shortages that we're dealing with uh, for all these products we talked about at the beginning—computers, cars, smartphones, appliances—that's that's still going to be a lot of work to settle that. And of course, that's one of the things contributing to inflation. Uh, when the things you want aren't available, it'll take some time to to bid up the price. What, if you want to look at the silver lining, though, I think it's been clear, you know, over the last twenty or twenty-five years that I've been covering semiconductors closely that having fab capacity, having factory capacity is ultimately a good thing uh, for a company that the demand for computer chips doesn't appear poised to evaporate anytime in the future. There will be cyclical ups and downs, but Intel is going to get these new factories eventually. They're going to be very expensive, but they're going to get them. And um, the federal government is picking up part of the tab. So that's a win. It's a big win. It's just that the benefits are you know, at least a few years off for Intel.
0: I'm glad you brought up your um, uh, long track record covering this industry and this company, Mike. Uh, you know, we're, when you take a step back, which is kind of hard to do when we're still in this weird pandemic living, but like, is this the most interesting moment uh, that you've covered <laughs> this company?
1: Yes, I, I think so. So there were a series of, of, gross missteps and scandals under their former ceo uh brian Kurzanich, starting around 2015 they had a two large layoffs that they you know Kurzanich admitted later he mismanaged then there was a uh he had an affair with a subordinate got fired uh and intel made a you know this is the roots of intel problem not those other two issues but they under Kurzanich they made a series of bad bets on their manufacturing future and they ended up losing their competitive edge and their leadership position so that was very interesting from the dynamic of a a series of bad news from the company but what's really interesting right now is that people are paying attention to semiconductors in a way they haven't in the whole time i've been covering this industry people had literally begun taking it for granted and um the technology became more complex uh you know over the past six or seven years. I mean, it, it's extraordinarily complex. But the issue <laughs> was that the the features on the, the semiconductors are down to the atomic scale. And it it became very difficult to continue making the improvements uh, in technology that people had become accustomed to. Uh, and then you had the supply chain issues accompanying the pandemic, and all of a sudden people realized, oh my god, semiconductors are absolutely indispensable. Um, You know, computer chips in Oregon, we, we tend to forget um, because we can't, you know, we can't see them, you know, we, uh, other big industries we have like Nike, you see the shoes everywhere, the logo everywhere, uh, forest products, you know, we're surrounded by trees. We, we get that. These are things that Oregon does, but you can't go into these fabs. You know, they shut them off. Everything in there is secret. It's in a clean room. You have to wear a bunny suit, even if they let you in. <laughs> so we forget that this is Oregon's big industry. Uh, th- we have... Probably the densest concentration of semiconductor manufacturing I- in the country here, and it's they, they account for about half our exports, and so it's it's really kind of Oregon's moment right now, and it, you know there's been a lot of hand wringing in Oregon over the last uh, year over the fact that all these new new fabs are being built in other parts of the U.S. and Oregon didn't get any of them. But Christian Kaler, as an economist at the Employment Department, and Josh Lehner, a state economist, they've pointed out that we've added a ton of new uh, semiconductor jobs in Oregon over the last year. Almost as many as if we'd gotten two of those factories. Uh, That The companies that are already here have been staffing up. We think of Intel, but there's all kinds of smaller ones uh, on semiconductor, uh, analog devices, uh, microchip technology—they're the ones making these these you know power controls and and other kinds of you know relatively low-tech chips. They're still very high-tech, but it's not the very leading-edge stuff. They they make those in Oregon, and they end up in in cars and appliances, um, uh, digital cameras, and you know, they've, they've just been killing it the last year and a half because the demand has been so strong. Their biggest issue has been hiring people, finding people.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good problem to have, um, when you're, when you're doing that well, I'm curious when you, when you mentioned earlier, uh, that we've taken this industry for granted, uh, I'm wondering, you know, I think the general public, I'm sure we always take stuff for granted, but, uh, it seems like, um, it takes both sides of the aisle in, in Congress realizing that to get anything done, right? Where um, yeah. all the kind of the posturing and, and cramming bills with, um, you know, important stuff that might not be as directly related to the the issue of this industry um, that was stripped away and ultimately pretty fast action to get something like this done in, in Washington within a span of a couple of years.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, for Intel and for others in the chip industry who's, who have been awaiting this bill, it has felt torturous. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Easy
0: for me to say. <laughs>
1: it's been 13 months since the first version passed the Senate, and it's not that different from the final version. Uh, so it was, it was pretty agonizing for, for people. But yeah, not a whole lot. There aren't very many big initiatives that get bipartisan support in Congress, broad bipartisan support, and this did. And this did. And I I think people are realizing that it's, you know, it's, you know, whether you're, um, you know, any, any state that has any kind of manufacturing in it is feeling the effect of the chip shortage right now, Oregon happens to be have, you know, a very high concentration of manufacturing relative to the rest of the country, but it doesn't matter if you're making chips or cars or dishwashers, uh, you're, you need these chips and it's, it's slowing down your economy when they're not there. So. As I said earlier, this isn't going to be an immediate fix. We're talking about a period of years, but there is some room for upside optimism.
0: Anything else I should have asked you on kind of this moment, (laughs) this extraordinary moment for Intel?
1: I I think the thing you could ask is, and the thing that everyone's wondering is, you know, can Intel carry off its turnaround? And analysts on Intel's call Thursday were like, you know, how do we know that after missing three, three major... Upgrades to its its microprocessor technology in the past few years, and now they've they've delayed uh, the release of a, another class of new chips. How do they know the new big upgrades are on track? And Intel went to some pains to say they are on track. You know, we're measuring that closely. Their CEO Pat Gelsinger did say that. You know, it, one of the things he has to do coming to the company is make sure that they're meeting their commitments to investors and to customers. And he said that, you know, he, he suggested that perhaps the amount of time he spent on pursuing this federal funding over the last 16 months or so, maybe that had diverted his focus some. He said that will be his focus going forward.
0: Hmm. Do you buy that? That, that,
1: that? Well, you know, he, he is he's an engineer. He's very well respected by Intel engineers. Uh, you know, it's you know, it, Intel's recent track record doesn't give people a lot of confidence, but they insist that all their metrics show things are going the right way. They say they've identified the reasons why they, they were delayed before, that the primary reason was that they were too slow to adopt a new class of manufacturing equipment called EUV. Uh, they're certainly all in on EUV now. So I don't know, I, I, I think there is some cause for optimism. Uh, even at, even as there's still a great deal of skepticism.
0: Well, let's take a quick break. Then we'll come back and talk a bit more with Mike Rogaway, who covers business and technology for The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Well, speaking of technology, it would not be a <laughs> a podcast we've had in the last couple of years without mentioning at some point the employment department and their uh, wondrous antiquated computer software down in Salem and I guess around the state, but uh, an an audit came out, a long awaited audit from the secretary of state that looked at the employment department and how it handled jobless claims during the pandemic and a whole bunch of other stuff. What was that report like? Well,
1: it was interesting. This was the third major audit of the employment department in the past decade. And the two prior audits had found the same thing that the department was a mess culturally, that leadership was dysfunctional, and that its computer systems were a wreck. Uh, and this audit, perhaps to its credit, uh, didn't dig back into those issues. It sort of took them as a uh, for granted. Uh, and it, it focused, you know, the, the fallout from those issues, everyone knows. Oregon was among the slowest in the nation to pay jobless benefits uh, during the pandemic, that so many new programs emerged and there were so many people that were unemployed, seeking benefits, our systems, our computer systems in the state just couldn't handle it. And it was a big, a big mess. Uh, And the phone systems. And the phone systems. Well, that was the only means they had to communicate with people really. But for eight to 10 months, you really couldn't get through on the phone. It was just a catastrophe. Uh, It could hardly have gone, gone worse. Uh, This report doesn't seek to, you know, audit doesn't necessarily seek to revisit that or or figure out just how bad it was uh what it does instead is it, it kind of focuses on on one element that went particularly wrong and that's what's called adjudication most of the people most of the time when you're filing for jobless benefits it's fairly straightforward whether you qualify you know if you get laid off because your employer out of business or they can't employ you anymore because they don't have any sales or the government orders the bar or restaurant to close to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Well, if you lose your job for those reasons, it's pretty clear. You usually qualify for for unemployment benefits. Um, But it gets more complicated in some cases. Maybe you and your employer disagree about the reasons you left uh, and some reasons might, you know, if you quit of your own volition, for example, you don't qualify. Um, certain types of employers, public school employees, sometimes don't qualify because they're not usually employed year-round, but sometimes they do. And so you have this adjudication process where the state looks to see, well, do you really qualify? Uh, but this this was the real focus of the audit. And the audit found that, you know, e- going back even before the pandemic— the rules and the procedures for how you handled adjudication weren't clear. They weren't clear to people outside the employment department wondering why they weren't getting their benefits. They weren't clear to the people doing the adjudication. Uh, there was, seemed to be conflicting rules. The information wasn't all available in any one place. It was a, a, a real mess. And as a result, you know, some cases weren't being handled promptly. Some cases were getting lost altogether. Some people were waiting more than two years for their benefits without it getting resolved. Uh, and this was a ma- this became a major issue. You know, it was a chronic issue before the pandemic, the audit found uh, we knew, you know, from watching what had happened during the pandemic, that it was a major issue. Once the, the pandemic hit tens of thousands of people were waiting long periods of time for their benefits to have those adjudicated. Uh, and so this went into the reasons, some of the reasons why that happened.
0: Okay. And where do we go from here? I mean, do, any well, fixes coming?
1: The Employment Department will tell you that they're, they've are they been working on this already. And and it's it's true that this was no secret. The Employment Department rec- recognized it. Uh, people seeking benefits recognized it. We certainly recognized it in the news media uh, that this was a major issue. Uh, you know, they've hired a bunch more adjudicators. Uh, they've made efforts to standardize training and standardize processes and procedures. The audit found though that Many of those things still weren't readily available in apparent uh, when the, you know, when the audit was concluded talking to the employment department this past week, they said, well, since the audit has, was completed, <laughs> we have done those things. You know, the proof will be in the pudding right now. We, you know, everything looks rosy right now at the employment department right now, because almost nobody is unemployed. We have the lowest unemployment rate in about history in uh, any time in history, so it's it look so you know good times cover up all kinds of problems. Uh we we seem to be dancing on the edge of a recession again now. If unemployment rises again, that will be the big test. But of course, by then it will be too late to fix it if there are in fact other problems.
0: And the computer issue won't be solved by then either.
1: No, no, we're looking at uh you know 2024, and just to revisit your listeners will remember much of this, I, I'm sure, but Back in 2009, Oregon and many other states got federal money. In our case, it was 85 million dollars to upgrade our computers, uh, which are running COBOL, so a COBOL mainframe from the 1990s. Some of the technology goes back farther to the further to the Reagan administration.
0: Yeah, we're talking uh, Atari people, here, basically, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> for sure. And people have known, you know, at least since 2009, but really before that, that this was a big issue, but. As prior audits and prior investigations by the Oregonian have found, you know, the, the agency management was just dysfunctional in the years after the Great Recession. You know, they fired three consecutive directors. Uh, there was a lot of infighting and it just didn't get done. And so the pandemic hit and won't. Uh, the audit found that most states that got that money in 2009, uh, uh, they hadn't upgraded their systems either, but their systems weren't nearly as old as Oregon's. In 2013, Oregon's was one of only two states still running those legacy mainframes. So I don't know if, you know, that other, I don't know what that other state was or if they had upgraded it in the intervening seven years, but Oregon certainly hadn't. And so uh, that's the root of of many of our problems here.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, we we spent... St- so much time as a newsroom and like on this podcast we talk about the myriad ways that the state government has failed from a technological standpoint but this audit kind of laid bare that you know here's a key function that's to give you know people who are seeking their rightly held benefits from the state um and there is a lack of understanding of how that works from the employees handling it themselves. I mean, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering what kind of ripple effect that may have, or, you know, how widespread is that when you take one little public facing entity from one state department and people don't know how it works, that that's not good.
1: Well, yeah, it's, you know, it was the Secretary of State who who oversees the audit, as as she said uh, Wednesday when the audit came out, she says, you know, the damage to the public's trust could it take a generation to repair. That this is what people, you know, if there's one thing, we're all paying this unemployment insurance so that this money is available in this situation. It doesn't come out of thin air. We as workers and employers are paying it uh, to make sure it's there. And when it isn't, it's it's a real mess. And you know, as you were suggesting, Andrew, this is not the first time, by any means, that Oregon has had technological failures uh, on key systems. Cover Oregon being the most notorious. Uh, you know, we 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 looked some back in 2020 into the reasons why that is, uh, and it's it's not just Oregon. You know, any government agency has has this kind of issue, and it's it has to do with you know on a high level that government objectives are different than business objectives and, and businesses, it's all right to fail as long as you fail quickly and can, can pivot states designed to spec. You can't buy your stuff, stuff off the shelf. There's no one single system. You don't go up to, you know, Hey, let's download the unemployment, uh, management software and, and we'll go with, with that and then everything will be fine every state's got its own rules and laws and whatever you do has to conform to those so it is a complicated task but other states demonstrated it's clearly not an impossible one so it is a real black eye for the state as well as having been an enormous hardship for for many people during during the pandemic and i i guess let me say one more thing before i forget it andrew you know one important finding of the audit it did appear that Certain people, uh, particularly Asian Americans, had their cases adjudicated much more slowly than other races. It also appeared that lower income people had their cases adjudicated much more slowly than others. But they really weren't able to say that conclusively, the auditors, because the state's data isn't complete enough to make that judgment and that just comes back to our technology our data is incomplete and so it's hard to diagnose the problem and how severe it is and what kind of problems we have
0: well yeah and i guess i was trying to tee up the the fact that you know just not knowing not knowing a key facet of your job um you know when you're working in state government can have damaging impact on on a lot of people and um and oh, uh, for sure. we, we saw that kind of bear out here. But anything else uh you've been covering recently you want to talk about? You're always got something interesting?
1: Let's go back to technology for a minute, Andrew. Uh, I, I, I mentioned it briefly that uh our tech jobs are are at a record high now. Uh that uh well I mentioned briefly that that. Semiconductor employment surged so much. Well, Josh Lehner, the state's office of economic analysis, he he did he ran the numbers and and found that we have finally, after 21 years, Oregon has finally exceeds uh, the number of technology jobs we had uh, and during the dot com era. It's taken us a long time to get there, uh, but we've we've gotten back there, and it, it's important for a couple of reasons. You know, technology is a, a big share of our economy, but tech wages are a huge share of, of are a huge share of the state's income base back in the 1980s. Um, you know, uh, tech made, you know, maybe 10 or 20% tech jobs paid, maybe 10 or, or, or 20% more than, than typical wages. Now they're, they're double. Uh, the average state wage, the average technology wage is, you know, $126,000 a year. So this has become a really vital industry to Oregon. And what's intriguing to me is that Oregon, its tech industry has grown this large without growing any new, really large homegrown technology employers. And we've just become a very welcome, uh, destination for tech companies based elsewhere who are looking either for an untapped pool of talent or when it comes to the semiconductor industry, uh, a population of workers with some special, very specialized skills uh, or, you know, just a, a, a close place to operate. If you're in Seattle or the Bay Area, this is a reasonable place to be.
0: Well, it's a reasonable idea to read your coverage if you're interested in this stuff. (laughs) And uh, you're a reasonable man for joining me on a very hot day. And uh, thanks for for doing it and for all your coverage.
1: Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Mike's Intel coverage in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at oregonlive.com/podsupport. Until next time.